Welcome to the Health Seminar, a presentation of Airs LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles, a service for the blind and reading impaired. Airs LA is proud to present the first of a two-part seminar on retinitis pigmentosa recorded by the Braille Institute. The seminar is titled, What Have You Done For Me Lately?, and presents advice and discussion by prominent medical authorities. Let's join Alison Durstein as she introduces the first speaker. Good morning. If you didn't get to meet me outside, my name is Alison Durstein, and I'm the Director of Communications here at Braille Institute. And I am so happy to welcome everybody here to our seminar today, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Um, it's a seminar that will discuss current treatments, clinical trials, and breakthroughs for living with retinitis pigmentosa for people of all ages. So today, our first speaker, I'm pleased to present Dr. J. Jill Hopkins. She will kick off our day today by giving us an overview of retinal degeneration. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Uh, Dr. Hopkins received her medical degree from McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. She completed her internship and residency in ophthalmology at the University of Toronto, Canada, and went on to study retinal diseases in London, England. Later, she returned to Toronto and went into academic practice specializing in macular degeneration and inherited retinal diseases. From 2004 to 2006, she was an assistant professor of ophthalmology and has directed the retinal degeneration program at Doheny Eye Institute. Um, she's also affiliated with Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, since last June, she has joined Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles to develop a comprehensive program in macular and retinal degenerations. Please welcome Dr. Hopkins. Good morning. Thank you very, very much, uh, everyone, for attending uh, the first of what I hope will be many seminars uh, dealing with new and improved ways of handling retinal degenerative diseases. Our program today is going to be pretty comprehensive. I'm going to start off the first 10, 15 minutes just talking about what retinal degenerations are. I know many of you know what they are and many of you are living with them, but there, it's a complex diagnosis, and sometimes people go through a lot of different doctors, a lot of different anxiety and challenges before they get to that diagnosis. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why that is and, and some of the things you may be asked to do when you see your doctor, some of the questions you can ask as you go through that process. So the most important thing um, to understand first about the retina is what an important neural tissue it is, meaning it's part of the brain. And the retina, we divide broadly into two major parts, the macula, which is the central part of our retina, and those are where our cones live. And our cones are our daytime cells, our detail vision, our color vision. So those of you that have retinal degenerations that cover the cone system, your primary symptoms may be trouble in bright light, trouble with detail, um, and trouble with color. The rods, in contrast, are our peripheral visual cells, and those are the cells that help us see at the side and help us see at night. And those are the ones commonly first affected in RP. So many people first notice night vision difficulties. Um, that symptom may then set you off on a great long uh, uh, challenge getting diagnosed as to what is causing that. But so the cones and the rods are the two major cell types. And absolutely, both cell types can be involved in retinal degeneration. But that's a broad distinction. 
And it's important that retinal degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, those are broad categories. So within that broad umbrella, there are many, many subtypes. And we'll talk a bit about that as well and why diagnosing which exact subtype you have can be challenging and time-consuming for everyone. So when you first see your doctor, the the questions will probably be um, what we call history. So they're going to ask a lot of different questions of you about the symptoms that you have. And they'll use that anatomy as a guide. They'll ask, are they central symptoms? Are they peripheral symptoms? I often ask my patients, where do you feel you see best? And that can be a good tip-off as to which part of the retina is most um, primarily involved. Then we ask about the progression of these conditions. So if someone older presents with these diseases, we can ask, you know, when could you last read without visual aids? Were you ever able to drive or when could you last drive? So we'll try and get a sense of how it's progressed. Overall, though, these are very slowly progressive conditions, okay? So if you ever see a doctor that tells you you're going to be blind from RP in six months, don't believe it, okay? Anyone who predicts anything, don't believe it. I never, I wish I could make predictions, but I can't. And that's a good thing because often people do much better than we would think. So very slowly progressive. You may, in the course of the disease, feel that you're having times where the vision gets a lot worse. And there are, it's kind of like a stepwise progression. So you will have a period, you'll have been going along fine. The vision may drop again. You may feel, I'm not functioning the way I was six months ago. That doesn't then keep crashing down on a downward slope, usually hit that step, and then start a new plateau, which may stay stable for many years again. So in general, slowly progressive. But we do, when we evaluate, you try and get a sense of that um, when things started to be a problem. We also ask a lot about other health issues, and sometimes even if you're 82, we'll be asking about your birth history, and you'll think, well, that's a little extreme. But there are sometimes cases where other systemic issues may be part of the RP that you've been diagnosed with, so that they may be what we call isolated, where just your retina is affected, or the retinal problems may be part of a larger syndrome, things like Usher's syndrome, where deafness is also associated with the retinal uh, condition. Bardet-Bedell syndrome, where um, children may be born with extra fingers or toes. They may have renal problems. So we always do try and pull together anything that might fit in. And any information you can give us through the course of that is extremely helpful. Sometimes things you think couldn't in any way be related are closely related. So we're not just trying to drive you crazy with endless questions. We do have a method to our madness. And then, of course, we'll look at family history. Are there any other relatives anywhere that you have heard of remotely or recently that have any visual problems? Other relatives who've worn glasses or had glaucoma, probably unrelated, but other people that may have had night blindness, central vision loss, a remote uncle that didn't drive, any of that might be um, relevant as we start to piece together what we think might be the genetic basis of a particular retinal degenerative disease. Um, when we ask as well about different symptoms, um, certain things, because these diseases are slowly progressive, you may think everybody sees like this, and that's common, especially in our you know teenage group if we're just starting to diagnose things. People may think, well, no one can see well at night, and everybody trips when they go in the movie theater. So sometimes family members can be helpful with that type of thing too. They can say, oh my gosh, you know, she always falls down when we go in a new environment in the dark, and they think, well, everybody does. But So any other information family members can give is also helpful. We're really trying to get a good sense of the big picture. Once we uh, exhaust you with all of that, then we start the clinical examination phase, and you will go through a thorough eye examination. 
Generally, you know, in my experience, unfortunately, people end up going to a lot of different doctors, being told a lot of different things, having a lot of various tests before the diagnosis may be made. And I think there are a few reasons that happens. These conditions are not common. You know, an average optometrist or ophthalmologist who has a busy practice may have one or two RP patients within that practice. Specialists like myself that see primarily only retinal degenerative diseases, we see lots of it. So we're comfortable with the differing presentations. We know that you may have very significant symptoms. Your retina may look normal, but we know when we do special testing, we're going to find out that, yes, you have a retinal degeneration. That can be a a complicated and frustrating thing for you, and I think... um, What I'll try and do and what Sue, our next speaker, will do is sort of help you guide through that diagnostic quandary. You're you're told this, or in some cases you know something's wrong and you're not getting the right answer. So we'll talk about through the testing that we do. Most times, though, you will be put through a thorough eye exam, and that will include measurement of your vision, your visual field. They'll check your pressures. They'll look for early cataracts, and then examine your retina. Sometimes in in retinal degenerations, we look in and boom, there's the diagnosis. There's no question. You have pigment scattered throughout your retina. You may have a large symmetric deposit in your macula with a condition we call best disease. So different clinical features, we may say, yes, absolutely, this is the diagnosis. Other times, though, we look and the retina looks good. You know, we look in, we think, I don't see anything to account for this. That's when we start putting you through some specialized testing. And if you know anyone or are going through that yourself, say, I'd like to have an ERG, please. (laughs) You probably don't want to have an ERG. It's not the most pleasant test, but an ERG works to very carefully measure the retinal function. It's an objective test. It measures the rods and the cones. Many of you sitting in this room have probably had them through the years. One piece of good news I will say about ERGs is that we have now new electrodes that we can use that are a little thread electrode that sits along the lower lid much less um, distressing or painful to go through than those old-style contact lenses that some of you may have had. So the ERG basically parallels an EKG of the heart. Our retinas, when we stimulate them with light, uh, produce an electrical response. So we're not zapping you with any electricity. We're throwing light at your retina, seeing what your retina does in those circumstances. And again, cones and rods respond in a very typical way. They have a normal amplitude and a normal timing. And in retinal degenerative diseases, either the timing or the amplitude can be decreased or severely um, depressed. And that ERG is a very good test and often the test that makes the diagnosis. I've had people who've had multiple MRIs. They've been told they have brain tumors. They've been told everything under the sun. The ERG is the way we're absolutely certain that that's what we're dealing with. Um, ERGs also can be done in very young children. And again, for those of you who have children that suffer with these conditions, some of these diseases do come on very early in life. By six weeks or a few months of life, you may think, mm, something's not quite right with this child's vision. Again, you end up running through the gamut of doctors, so neurologists, multiple um, visits. We can do ERGs in, in little babies. We can give them a, what we call a conscious sedation, which is a little bit of medication orally to let them drift off to sleep. We can then examine them and do an ERG. Sorry, And that uh, becomes a very useful diagnostic tool. Again, if you have concerns, and in my my rule of thumb is that the parents are always right, keep looking, do the testing until you find out what is the cause of any concern. Because the parents know their kids best, and if they think something isn't right with that baby's vision, something isn't right with that baby's vision until proven otherwise. And that often includes doing that ERG test. 
So why do we put you through all this? Well, ultimately, you know, 20 years ago, we could say, well, you have a retinal degeneration or RP and we'll see you next year. Um, now things are changing so much that what we do with all that clinical information is get a sense of what we call your phenotype. And that's just a, a medical term for the clinical appearance, the behavior of the particular retinal disease that you have. So some phenotypes look the same across multiple families, across multiple individuals. Other phenotypes are vastly different. So we pull that together and try and say, okay, clinically, what do we see that we have here? The reason we like to do that then is to move to what we call the genotype, which is the genetic understanding of the disease. That's where we take a blood sample from you, actually look at that DNA in the laboratory. And sometimes the phenotype and genotype overlap very similarly, as in Best disease, which is an early-onset macular degeneration. looks like a little egg yolk in the macula. Nothing else really looks like that, and only one gene causes that. That's easy. Conditions like Stargardt's disease or cone rod dystrophy, even certain forms of macular degeneration affect different age groups, look very different, and have the same gene underlying them in some cases. So it's a complicated thing. And that's why, you know, we may send blood for genetic testing. We may not get an answer for a period. We may never get an answer of the genes we know now. Still worth doing, though, because that's how we discover further correlations. So in general, then, for inherited retinal degenerations, think of it as a genetic abnormality. They can be macular, they can be peripheral, they may be isolated, or they may be part of other uh, health issues. Once the diagnosis is made, that opens a whole other host of challenges. And we're going to divide this next section into two parts. Uh, Sue Parker-Strafacci, who runs the children's program at Braille, which is outstanding, she's going to come and talk to us next about issues in that age group. I'll pop back up again and talk a little bit about some of the questions and issues that affect older age groups uh, with this diagnosis. So I welcome Sue. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay, thanks. Hi, my name is Sue Parker-Strafasi. I'm Director of Child Development Services here at Braille Institute, and I'm really happy to see you all, and I'm happy to see that part of my staff is, the staff is here today, Marcy Hayes, Caroline Clark, and Maria Acosta from the Child Development staff are here today, so if you get a chance to say hello to them, please do. Um, they're back in the third, second, the, the fourth row back, or fifth row back, so it'll be nice for you to see them. Um, as Jill was saying, we're, we're, you know, we're talking a lot about, um, kind of understanding the diagnosis. And one of the things that I've found, I've been at Braille here about 20 years, and one of the things that I have noticed when I've talked to families is some of the first questions and statements I get is, why did this happen to my baby? No one in my family has ever had a retinal disease. No one in my family has ever had a visual impairment. What's, why, why, why us? Why me? And then the second thing we hear is the last thing I ever wanted, I thought I would ever hear, uh, someone, I mean, last, the last person who ever would, I, I thought would be coming to talk to me about my baby would be somebody from Braille Institute. So as you can imagine, parents are going through such struggles with how to understand whether, why their child has this visual impairment and why then they have to be, be connected with all these service agencies that really become quite intrusive in their lives because, again, it's more people who are finding out about their child and, and coming into their homes and giving them help. And while they're very grateful, it's very humbling sometimes for as a professional to be 
understand that, you know, we're really right there on the front line looking at them and identifying, asking all those questions that Jill was talking about in terms of asking history, because, again, this is not what they expected. So we have to, at this point, have to really spend the time listening, taking the time to understand what it is the family is looking for so that we can help begin to help them find answers and be able to navigate them in ways to be able to get them help for their child. Um, one of the first things I talk to parents about when I see them is to um, kind of give them an idea and strategy about building a team, building a team of professionals that can help them throughout this process of understanding the diagnosis. Um, I, as Jill said, many times doc- families will go from one doctor to another doctor to another doctor to get information or to get ideas or to get to get something, some some sort of a clear diagnosis or clear answer. And there isn't always an answer. And oftentimes with children with RP, we don't always see that the the critical diagnosis until they have the ERG or until they're a little bit older. And you can really begin to put those things, put all the pieces together. So in building a team of a good pediatric ophthalmologist and then a retinal specialist, I mean, perhaps a developmental optometrist who can help with uh, lenses, refractive lenses, something that can help that child in the beginning is one way for families to get started and feel begin to feel like they can take control of the situation. In California and throughout the um, throughout the country, there's we have uh, early start services, and early start services are designed to help families who have children with visual impairments and other disabilities to provide to have to find supports and to find services. Um, this could include teachers of the visually impaired. It could include mobility specialists, uh, speech specialists, occupational therapists, a, a, whole, a whole team of people who work together to help you and your child. Now, for kids from birth to three, it's important that their parents understand that these services are available. And sometimes at that stage, you're just trying to figure out, why does my baby need all this? But I'm sure glad they're here. So what we try to do at Braille Institute is help to kind of connect families with these services. We will make sure that if we get a referral to a, from a family, from a doctor or someone else in the community, we make sure they understand about their school district services or the services that might be available to them for, for, through early start. And at that point, we work in collaboration. Our, our goal is to really work in collaboration with all those specialists. One of the things our consultants do when they go into the home is they begin to, again, take some history, take some, some, some idea about what the family's concerns are, find out a little bit about the child's birth history, find out a little bit about the family history so that we can begin to maybe gather that information that we can help them with. Um, from there, we kind of look at how do, how can we look at this baby and how, how do we, how do we help them to, with their overall development? Because again, we're not looking at a visual impairment. We're looking at a baby. We're looking at a young infant. And so our goal is to kind of look at it from a global sense. How, how can that, how, how is that visual impairment possibly going to affect that child's development? So we ask questions. We do assessments. We kind of look at how the baby's doing. And in that regard, we kind of get, begin to get some ideas about what that baby might be using in terms of residual vision. And that part, again, is a very critical part in that early stages, first birth to three stages, because what's going on with the brain is also that connection. If there's residual vision, we want to be able to stimulate the brain so they know how to use that, that light that's coming through. So our consultants use a lot of really bright toys, reflective toys, black and white, high contrast items that really gets a visual attention for a baby. Some of the things we might be, some strategies we might try is to um, take the baby's bottle. Like for instance, like, you know, a baby's taking their bottle. We kind of try to embed these things in their daily routines. And we may wrap electrical tape around that baby's bottle. So you have this high contrast 
you know, with the milk in the background and the, um, the, the, um, um, t- the electrical tape are surrounding that bottle. And the high contrast becomes a very interesting target. And then at the high motivation of wanting to eat and you know, drink that bottle, the baby may be in an alert state where they might be able to see that bottle as a very highly stimulating visually, visual target. So those are the kinds of things we try. We just kind of come up with suggestions and ideas. We have a really creative staff who really looks at how, what's, what's happening with this family. Cause we don't want to see vision stimulation as another quote unquote therapy time. We want to see it as a time that's embedded in the routines, something that's going to be part of their day. So um, the other suggestion we might have a child who's learning to finger feed. Well, you see a, a, a Cheerio, as you, as you all know, a Cheerio sitting on a light background isn't going to have much interest to a baby. But you put it on a black background, and all of a sudden it stands up and stands out, and the baby has a much better success rate of being able to pick up that Cheerio. And again, building success, building in, in initiative, building that, that sense of independence, that's what we want to see with these very, very young children, you know, from one to two. The other thing we, we talk about with parents is to um, also, I'm going to move this up just a little bit. The other thing we talk about with parents is to, um, you know, add little things throughout the day. Like, for instance, during a diaper change, you know, if you have a pen light or a flashlight right there at the table, and you can play with the baby with a flashlight, see if they, if they smile, if they blink, if they respond, um, if they reach for the, reach for that, that flashlight. Cause again, it's during the daily activities that this becomes meaningful to the child and meaningful to the family. And they see this and they go, wow, this is great. This is great information for me to send to my pediatric ophthalmologist. So they take that information gather it, gather it, and then form questions based upon this information, these, these observations they're seeing for, with their baby. So again, these are the kinds of things we want to help parents understand and give them kind of guidance and kind of structure to these questions. So you know, they, they know how to walk into a doctor's office and be able to say, you know, I'm not intimidated here. I really want you to help me. I want you to be part of my team. So, I mean, obviously having someone like Jill Hopkins on your team would be a great thing. So <laughs> that's what you'd want to be looking for. So again, we're trying all the time. We're, we're working with these families from birth to five. We're, we're trying to help them become advocates for the young child. Because again, a baby, an infant, you know, they, it's not, it's not them. They don't have the problem. You know, they're kind of going through their life and going through their experience as they would typically see themselves going through it. It's the parents who need to be the advocates and become more better observers of their child so they can provide the assistance that they might be needing. As a child, as a child goes into the toddler stage, you might see that the toddler becomes a little more clumsy. And that's, you know, and that's, and that's always that million dollar question. Is it the toddler or is it the beha- or is it the vision? You know, so, so we kind of look at that clumsy behavior as like, well, you know, that's something we would kind of see. But are they constantly bumping to one side? Are they constantly losing side vision? Are they constantly seem to be turning their head to see if they can get a better view of something? These are the kinds of things we also want to observe to make sure that we're, we're catching all of those subtle, subtle, um, cues that might be an indicator of the child's vision that might be decreasing. So these are things, again, to bring to the ophthalmologist, to bring to the specialist to talk about. Um, the other thing we kind of notice at this time is possibly as a child begins to look at pictures and maybe misses things in books and such, and then parents begin to think about, okay, how are they going to read? Are they going to be able to read like this? So at two and three, it's another good time to begin to talk to your teacher of the visually impaired or your, or your specialist or your child development consultant about pre-Braille experiences. Because again, 
you want to stimulate whatever residual vision is there, and you want to make sure that that remains and keep those connections going. But if there is a possibility that this child is going to fall behind because they don't have Braille instruction, then you want to be sure the parent knows that this is an option for them. This is an option for their child, and, a, and it's an important option because as print gets smaller, even if they can read letters in a, in a, you know, in a, in a preschool age book or a kindergarten age book, when print gets about, you know, second, third grade, it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's a, you know, it's a real struggle for these kids. And even though they have good functional vision, they may fall behind in their academics if they don't have the Braille. So we want to introduce the idea of pre-Braille concepts to parents at about two to three to four years old. And then so that when they're kindergarten age, they're ready to learn to read. They may be, they're, they're prepared and parents are prepared. So it's not such a big, big mystery. So these are some of the things we also want to be able to discuss. One of the things also that happens, we, we, we want to be able to ensure parents know about the resources in their community. Um, oftentimes we think that children with visual impairments have to go to special schools or stay in special, stay with, stay within their peer group. And for some children that may be beneficial. But for many children, community resources like community preschools, um, parks and recreation, the mom and me programs, all those things offer great socialization and language development for kids. And so we, we, rec- we recognize that many children will need specialized services throughout their life, you know, obviously throughout their high school life and such. But to eliminate those those typical activities that, ch- that all children go to is really doing a disservice, too, because children need to learn from their peers. They need to be challenged. So in our program, one of, the, one of, our, one of our components of our program is to help families locate appropriate preschool programs, because an appropriate community preschool program offers the kind of developmental appropriate activity that is available to children in need of that pre-Braille activity. So things like playing in sand, you know, building with blocks, you know, same and different. Learning all those concepts is critical in developing those those initial skills for Braille. So that can be done in a regular environment as well. So again, looking at options, we want to make sure parents know that they're not so limited. They have options. Their children have options, and it's really important that we don't try to um, guide a child down one path when they really are a very different child than that child who we think is the child with a visual impairment, because every child is different. And then the last thing I would say to parents in terms of, of um, just understanding your child, understand that your child is a child first. Their visual impairment is only a part of them. And parents will, you know, go through so many, so many avenues trying to help their child. And obviously they, you know, this is all part of the process. But without the play and without that, that engagement with other children and having normal exper- experiences, the childhood is lost too while you're seeking that answer for that visual impairment or or to fix that visual impairment or make it different or find a doctor. Go on that path, but also play, enjoy enjoy those experiences, take the time to really um, understand and observe your child because that's going to really help the team that you're you're building and especially will help your ophthalmologist because if you can observe how they play and how they use their vision, that can be a huge, huge benefit to the ophthalmologist that your child may see. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sue. So I think the most important point Sue made there really is this team approach. And I think there are things that Sue does that I can never do, things that I do that Sue can't do. But the, just knowing that you're not alone out there, that there are fantastic resources, um, resources I never let my patients leave the office without or knowing about the Foundation Fighting Blindness, who's also very, um, 
generously co-sponsoring the uh, efforts today. Um, they have a uh, table at the back as well, talking about some of their chapters, but just some of the wonderful work uh, the foundation does. They are very committed to RP. Um, we're very pleased to have Tim Shane as one of our speakers today as well, and I'll introduce him shortly. But uh, I think just knowing that um, you're not alone, there are wonderful resources out there. Uh, the biggest challenge is, as Sue says, getting that team together, finding a group of people that help you get through what you need to get through day to day. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the more common questions that I get with the older age group. Um, big one, as Sue uh, outlined in the children, how did I get this? So if you're sitting there at the age of six months, 16 years, or 60 years, why suddenly do you have this genetic disease? That's a complicated thing. We say, well, it is genetic. And people say, well, how can it be genetic? I've never had this in my family before. It's because there are different forms of genetic inheritance. Sometimes there's a clear family history where you look back four generations and every male has had vision problems for as long as you can remember. Or you may have grandma, uh, another great-grandpa who had a problem, a sister, a cousin somewhere else, where clearly there's a family history. This is something you know about. But a lot of the cases are what we call recessive inheritance, where parents may each carry a gene for a disease that they don't know they have and have never heard of. When they have a child, the child gets both of those carrier genes and actually gets the disease. And the analogy I use for that is when two brown-eyed parents have a blue-eyed child. I have a blue-eyed son with a husband whose brown eyes have some good on the recessive, <laughs> explaining why that happens. But basically, you have no idea you have this. And in any marriage, there's about a 1 in 100 chance of some recessive disease coming up. So that explains a lot. We think perhaps 40% of RP may be this recessive form. So that's how we kind of explain the genetics of something that doesn't necessarily mean you've seen it before in the family, but it's in our genetic makeup. And that's important because of the strides we're making with understanding the genes uh, that are causing these diseases. In the late 80s, they found the first gene for X-linked RP, and X-linked means that it runs in families affecting males. Females carry the gene, and males get the disease. And they found that um, there were groups in England and America that found those genes. That was very exciting. Since that time, up to 2006 now, we have now identified 120 different genes that cause retinal degenerations alone. We found multiple genes for Usher syndrome, which causes the deafness and retinal disease. We found eight genes for Bardet-Biedel syndrome that I mentioned earlier. Nine genes now for Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is a very early onset form of RP that we'll talk about a bit more today because of the exciting therapies that are, are developing there. So the gene discovery effort is fantastic and, and dramatic. So we are making considerable headway there. Um, and that, as I say, is not just academic now. We really do hope that understanding the genetic basis will give us ways to, to cure these diseases. And genes are complicated, and I'm, I'm not. I like to do simple things. And I say your, your genetic makeup is kind of like a recipe. And when you have a genetic um, problem, you're either missing an ingredient or the ingredient you have doesn't know how to function properly. So gene therapy, when we talk about actually trying to correct genetic problems, we're talking about replacing that ingredient, either giving you a brand-new functioning one or giving you one to replace one that isn't there. And that, we hope, will be the way that we'll actually look at restoring vision. We'll, we will talk a little bit about that uh, further. So a lot of people say, well, should I have a blood test? Is this something I should look at doing? My short answer to that in 2006 is yes. Uh, Dr. Ed Stone, who's a wonderful uh, retinal degeneration specialist and geneticist, is at the University of Iowa, and he's developed a wonderful lab where he looks at the DNA for um, retinal degenerative diseases. And he's very committed to getting... Um, 
a thorough understanding, getting most people with retinal degenerations actually genotyped. And his lab has two ways of doing that. He's developed a fee-for-service arm in the same way if you came in and I said, I'm worried your potassium might be high, I'm going to send your blood and we'll find out what your potassium level is. If you come in and I say, I think you might have Stargardt's disease or I think you might have dominant RP based on your family history, I'm going to take some blood from you, I'm going to send it to Dr. Stone. Insurance will cover it in the vast majority of cases. Um, and uh, within six weeks you have an answer as to whether or not you carry that particular gene. In certain cases, it's not that easy. And um, for, so for recessive-type disease, that genetic situation is harder to find. So we may need to um, look longer and harder to find the recessive genes. But in that um, situation, we can send your blood to Dr. Stone for what he calls his research arm. And basically, he will take DNA. It's one simple blood tube. We send it. You never have to have that blood test again. DNA, as you know, lives on forever. And uh, Dr. Stone um, has samples from 25 years ago that are still there. If a new gene is discovered and he thinks, oh, that's in my Lieber's pool, I'm going to pull that out and run that against this new gene, see what we find. So that blood can stay there forever. And then as new genes are discovered, if someone in um, China next week finds a, a gene that we think will account for a lot of recessive disease, he can look at that blood against that new gene discovery. So that research arm is also very powerful. Um, it, the other thing I like about Dr. Stone's approach is that it is, he always considers it your sample. So if at any point you feel, oh, I want it out of there, absolutely you can do that. But their lab is very good, very committed to trying to get uh, accurate genetic information. That's a long-term project for sure, but um, something if you're interested in, in genotyping, we can talk about uh, doing that on an individual basis. So the next question of great concern is always, well, are my children going to get it? And that's an important one. Um, I am not a genetic counselor, but I work with good ones, and I refer people to talk to genetic counselors because there are multiple forms of inheritance, and it's important that we get that right because that's a major decision for people wondering about future generations or if they already have eight children, what are the chances there of them being affected? So really sitting down with someone who understands that that's not a five-minute discussion in your eye doctor's office. You really need to be sent to someone who will take the time, do the family history, and then talk to you about all the different forms and what the risks would be. Sometimes we don't know for sure what your exact genetic um, uh, um retinal disease may be or what your odds might be, but knowing all the different possibilities gives you much more information with which to make decisions. So, again, um, just, you know, I've had people that have, you know, years ago decided not to have children. When you look at it, they probably would not have had affected children. So it's good information. So you want to make sure you get that if that's one of the questions uh, uh, of importance at any time. Another common question, will I go blind and when? So as I mentioned before, don't ever let anyone make pr predictions about that. Um, we, we don't know, and we've talked about the slow general progression of things. The time frame of, of the progression depends on many factors. Um, early onset disease doesn't progress faster, but tends that people have more trouble at an earlier age because they've had the disease longer disease that comes on when you're 55 um, is it will progress at the same rate, but chances are you're going to be that much older by the time it's causing more difficulty. And retinal degenerations really do have that spectrum from birth to, I diagnosed someone who was 82 with RP last week, so huge age spectrum and multiple factors there. And again, good information. If you feel that you're not getting the answers or if you're getting answers that you don't quite believe, either finding a retinal degeneration specialist, touching base with the foundation or the Braille, Lots of good sources of information there.
The other thing that's useful, and um, Dr. Fishman, who's a retinal degeneration specialist in Chicago, has been in practice, I think, almost 40 years now and has collected very good what we call natural history data. So he has a lot of information on how these diseases progress. Um, generally, when you look at those, the, it's not as bleak as we all think it's going to be, um, and it's also very helpful. The other thing that's helpful is that it is a changing landscape now. So the the sort of sentence of progressive visual loss we think is going to be changing. We do think we're going to be able to get in there and impact on that. Tomorrow, no, but over the next few years, yes. Um, so just to keep that hope in mind, you know, that things have changed dramatically in the last decade. It's it's a, a changing landscape, and you need to be aware of that. Again, if you see doctors that tell you otherwise, you want to come and find someone who knows the, all the different um, things that are becoming available. Very important. And the next big question is, well, Doc, that's great. How are you going to treat it? It's 2006. Fix me. And I would love to. <laughs> I really hope that by 2010 we can. But what I talk about is kind of breaking things down into two major categories. What can we do living with the disease right now? And a lot of people, again, who've had RP for a long time may have been told years ago, there's nothing we can do, you're going to go blind. A lot of people don't even want to come and see doctors, and I don't blame them. I would say, though, and I was having a good conversation about this with a couple of my patients yesterday, was do, you know, don't give up on the medical profession. Find a, a retinal doctor or RP specialist that you like, that you can see. You don't have to see them every week. Even every year may not be necessary, but you want to stay abreast of what's happening. Things are changing. We do want to know that you're out there. Um, what we worry about is that many people with RP don't come to symposiums like that. They've given up on the medical profession, often with good reason, and we, we want to know that you're there. So if you are in support groups, know other people with RP, try and get them interested and invested again, not only to make sure that other ocular diseases aren't developing that we might be able to treat and want to see them for, but also to know that, that they're there. One evaluation where we get some baseline testing gets you into our database. We then know where to find you if, if treatments and things come along that are going to be useful. So we're really trying to capture um, uh, what is sometimes a disillusioned group of people. And I know Carmen Applegren, who unfortunately isn't with us today, works at the Braille. Uh, when I was first chatting to her about this symposium, uh, she has RP and she said, oh, we're a jaded lot. We're not going to come spend our time in the doctor's office. So we're sending Carmen this audio tape uh, to show her the changing landscape. <laughs> so one of the things that I uh, work very hard to make sure patients are aware of it's a very good low vision evaluation. Um, things, the technology that's gone in um, low vision, high-tech low vision, computers, all the different things, and again, the Braille is an outstanding resource for that. Unbelievable the things that people can keep doing, even with advanced vision loss. So I try to make sure that people are, are referred to centers that can show them everything that's out there. Um, I have PhD students with advanced vision loss, coping great, doing well uh, at very high levels of education with visual aids. So making sure that you get uh, linked up with that, very, very important. Um, issues around mobility, very important. Again, the Braille works uh, extensively with that. Um, and then looking also at social support, advocacy, knowing, you know, sometimes it's a, a very confusing environment and having someone who can say, we can help your kid in school this way. My teenager wants to learn to drive. Let's talk about that. You know, there's a lot of issues. So just making sure that you're getting that advocacy and support that you need. Um, I'll spend a bit of time talking about antioxidants or, or vitamins. Basically, we're looking um, more and more towards antioxidants as a potential um, way to slow progression of retinitis pigmentosa. 
We don't have definite studies that it makes a, a definite difference, but the evidence is accumulating more and more that um, by using high-dose antioxidants, you may in fact improve the environment for those retinal cells, make it a healthier environment, and one in which the retinal cells may not degenerate um, as quickly. So we're looking at combinations now of a good general multivitamin, lutein and zeaxanthine, and then the currently ever-present omega-3 fatty acids. We're hearing about these everywhere. These are the fish oils. So all of these look to be effective in, um, again, making a better environment. We're trying to give those retinal cells the best environment they can have. So my current recommendation is a, a multivitamin, lutein, zeaxanthin, and an omega-3. I don't um, subscribe to the high-dose uh, vitamin regimens. I know vitamin A was a very... Um, popular treatment about a decade ago in very high doses. What we have learned about some of the genetic um, bases of these diseases, vitamin A may not, in fact, be good for certain forms of retinal degeneration at all. And I think, in general, um, having everyone take the high dose of vitamin A potentially has um, risks that might not be matched by the potential benefits. So I go for a more daily dose type um, approach there. And then the treatments. So that's the next category. So in the future, uh, as I say, do we have treatments tomorrow? No, but there are incredibly um, exciting, hopeful um, things on the horizon. And there really is, again, this international effort in progress that we want to be ready for the cure. Uh, places like the Foundation Fighting Blindness are, are at the um, forefront of that and are spearheading that, trying to organize centers where there are RP specialists that are going to be um, aware of and working on these clinical trials. Um, and we really are are, you know, excited over the, the potential that is here now for some of these trials in humans ready to begin. The challenge in all retinal diseases, and this is important for people to understand, is, well, why can't you just fix it? Why can't you transplant, give me a new retina, and I'll be fine? The complicating factor is that the retina is part of your brain. As I mentioned at the start with the anatomy, it's neural tissue. And we can't yet transplant that and make your brain understand that. As Sue mentioned, that's a dynamic process developing developing your visual system over a lifetime. So although technically, yes, we could give you a new piece of retina, our surgeons can go in and do that, getting it to hook up and link to the visual system around it is, is challenging. So what we're looking at now are rescue strategies, and those have been um, divided into to, uh, three broad categories, and we're going to touch on all of them today. So the first idea I mentioned was gene therapy, and that idea is basically to either repair that initial insult to the retina or prevent it from ever happening, and that's where gene therapy fits in. Then we say, well, what can we do to perhaps protect the cells? Even if we can't cure or restore that underlying problem, can we put anything in the eye that will help prevent further progression of, of visual loss? That would be great. And we'll talk about those in co- the context of what we call these neuronal survival agents. And then we have ways to replace or bypass that abnormal retina. So in, in RP or in cone dystrophies, when the rods and cones lose their ability to function, we can look at implanting a, a retinal prosthesis type effect where we can bypass the photoreceptors that are no longer working and signal the rest of the visual pathway that we know is still okay. It may not be totally normal, but it's still okay. Um, so those are the major avenues that we'll talk about uh, this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hopkins. 
Dr. Timothy Shane, um, he's going to talk about um, promising treatments, clinical trials, and beyond. And he um, joined the Foundation Fighting Blindness as Director of Grants and Awards in February of 1997. Currently, he serves as Director of Research Development for Foundation Fighting Blindness, and his key responsibility involves serving as a science information resource and educator on the current status of research directed at developing treatments and cures for degenerative retinal disease. Dr. Shane. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Hopkins gave a very excellent introduction to uh, the basic uh, anatomy, physiology of the eye, and and covered the diseases. Um, uh, Did a terrific job. Talked a little bit about genetics. And actually, she set the stage for me to talk to you now about some exciting things that are happening with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. A couple of years ago, um, our founder, Gordon Gund, who was blind from retinitis pigmentosa, as many of you know, basically thought that things were not moving out of laboratory, out of the academic labs, uh, quick enough to treatments. We've been around for 35 years now. And uh, he got together with some of our trustees and thought, well, we need to do something more. And so basically they formed something called the National Neurovision Research Institute, or NNRI, now, NNRI is, a, is an institute. It's a subsidiary of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Right now, it's not a building, but uh, we've actually just hired a chief drug development officer to lead the efforts of NNRI. And what NNRI hopes to do is to accelerate the development of treatments and cures by working with small biotech companies, pharmaceutical companies, venture capitalists, and... Uh, essentially move these treatments as quick as possible out of the laboratory and into clinical trials. And so we come to the end of the first half of a two-part seminar on retinitis pigmentosa recorded by the Braille Institute. If you got this far, undoubtedly you'll want to listen to the second file of the series, health 070619-2.mp3.